I just started asking myself, like, is this it? Is this, is this my whole life? And it being my addiction, like drinking all the time, blacking out, being hungover, losing tons of time to this thing, being mentally consumed with when I was gonna drink again, what that was gonna look like. Welcome to the show that drops in on people's moments of clarity surrounding their choice to not drink. I'm Kate Madry, and I'm so happy you're here. Sobriety is like a thumbprint, and just like your skincare routine or your self-care routine, everyone's sober care routine is very different. By the end of each conversation, you'll leave with a little bit more insight to help guide you while building your sober care routine. This is a Clear-Headed Podcast. Today's discussion is with Amy C. Willis, the founder of Whole and Well, and she's been working professionally in the recovery space for more than three years and recently celebrated six years of sobriety. This conversation is insane. I I mean, you're going to have to bear with me while I say, excuse me, what? Can you explain that again? I'm hoping you would have needed that too. So I spoke up for all of us when I said, repeat, hello. Um, But we dive into EFT or tapping and just so much, so much, so much, so much. I'll stop talking. Enjoy. If you could go back in time, um, when you had your aha moment or your moments of clarity where you realized that alcohol was no longer serving you, what was that like? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. And I think things in terms of my relationship to drinking really started to change in 2015. So for a little bit of context, I lost my dad in 2014 to his alcohol addiction, and I had no tools and didn't really know how to process the intensity of the grief that I was dealing with. Um, And so my addiction to alcohol got a whole lot worse before it got better. And sometime in 2015, so I would say probably about a year after he passed, I was sort of out of the acute grief stage, but still drinking heavily. And my dad had just passed away and and he had been dealing with an alcohol addiction for many years. And so I kind of had my path laid out for me if I decided to keep going the way I was going. And something within me at that time, and I, I can't even imagine, or I can't even really remember what it was that prompted it, but I just started asking myself, like, is this it? Is this is this my whole life? And it being my addiction, like drinking all the time, blacking out, being hungover, losing tons of time to this thing, being mentally consumed with when I was going to drink again, what that was going to look like, and then just doing that cycle over and over and over. And something in me was saying that there had to be more and that I was here for a purpose beyond that. And so I think it was really at that time that those questions started to arise within me. And that was really the start of finding some clarity around my relationship to drinking. What was the process like once you started answering that very tough question of, I mean, I don't know if you can tell, I get teary-eyed when you say that because I think so many people go through that question of like, oh, why am I going to cry? I don't know. Um, 
is this it? And you think that that's, that's all it's going to be. So I think so many people ask that, even if you take it outside of alcohol, maybe it's an abusive relationship where it's the dynamic with your parents or it's your friendships or it's your, you know, your job. Like that is such a hard question to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. How did you start answering it? Yeah. Um, well, I would say it was a slow process. It wasn't like that question bubbled up in me and then everything changed. So I would say um, I started to look at my relationship to alcohol differently. I started to take small chunks of time off and just, you know, I, I would ask like, what could it look like to not drink this weekend? And just like take this out of the equation and see what happens. Um, so I think that was that was part of it. And just at the time, I wouldn't have called myself sober curious, and I don't even think that that concept existed at that point. But I can look back on it now as curiosity, which I think is such a helpful entry point into this conversation for anybody who is thinking about their relationship to drinking. Um, but yeah, just just seeing what would happen if I did this differently or seeing what would happen if I didn't do what I'd always been doing and, and just be open to whatever the outcome was. I love that method because I think it's so approachable for people who feel overwhelmed with the idea of like cold turkey or yeah. I, I, I don't remember who told me this. I mean, I'm sure it's also just a very common thing to know about like the slingshot effect where if you pull yourself back from something without really fully wanting to or there's resistance in that pullback, eventually you're going to slingshot. It's going to break and snap and you'll fly like 10 times harder into the the opposite direction. So not even creating that resistance as much is such a beautiful way to get started. And it's still a lot of work. It's so much work to get into that cold pool, one freaking foot, limb, leg at a time, because even though half your body is out of it, or even if you're like kind of taking it slow, you still feel the coldness wherever your body is in that water. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes too, like going with that pool visual, if you are getting in your pool and you're kind of like, okay, this is cold, but maybe I like the cold or maybe like I needed it. My feet have been hurting and now they feel better because the water is cold, whatever. How many times did you get out of that pool because you couldn't take the temperature? And what did it feel like to, I don't know, maybe go waist deep and then get out again if that was the case? How did you dry off? How did you go back to the pool? Mm-hmm. I love that analogy because I'm really into cold therapy. And I was oh. actually on my vacation last week. I was in Newfoundland. So we were on like northern Atlantic Ocean and we went in, uh, which was really rad because I mostly do my cold therapy in my shower or cold bath. So it was really cool to like get into the ocean. I'm writing it down because we got to come back to cold therapy. Um, yeah. <laughs> you got to so explain it, was, it to me. But yeah. <laughs> not to derail. Yeah, that was a great a great example. So going back and actually using the example of the slingshot, I think um, so in this time when I was like, huh, is this it as an entry point into my relationship to alcohol? 
I did have, you know, little pockets where I wasn't drinking and then my mind would tell me that everything was fine. And then I would go back into drinking much harder than when I left. Mm -hmm. So it in a lot of ways was like that slingshot. Like I'd pull back a bit and then I'd go right head first back into it. And I had a lot of those times where I talked myself out of it. It wasn't an issue. And then I would end up back where I was, if not in a worse position. Um, and so I did, I did a lot of that for probably about a year before I got to a place where I was very clear that this thing was not working for me. And leading up to that point, I really hadn't considered being sober. I hadn't considered the idea of removing alcohol from my life permanently. It felt, I felt like my life would be over if I did that. So that wasn't even really on the table. I was just approaching it as what would happen if I did this a little bit differently. Um, and then I did, I did eventually arrive at a place where I was clear that this thing was not working for me and I needed to really give myself a chunk of time where it was not in the equation to see how I felt, to understand who I was as an adult without alcohol because I'd been drinking since I was 16. Mm. Um, and so when I got to that moment where I knew that I needed to make a decision about alcohol, I decided that I would not have any any alcohol in my life in my body for a six month mark, uh, a six month time frame, and then at that six month mark, I would reassess because I couldn't I couldn't swallow the idea of never drinking again, and so that sort of it was it was tough like going back and forth mm -hmm. the indecision of it mm -hmm. the. Um, always knowing that it was up for negotiation and up for grabs was such mental anguish for totally. me. And when I arrived at that place where I was like, okay, this thing is not going to be in my life now for six months, even though it was a hard decision to arrive at, it created such relief for me because I now – I, I felt like I had made a decision and I now no longer had to negotiate with myself every single day about whether or not this thing would be part of that day. And so that that was um, I, that really felt like a turning point, like I was taking a stand for myself in my relationship to drinking. It's so interesting because I totally get what you're saying and I think anybody can. It's good. Sometimes it's comforting, especially when ideas are really new to have them as options instead of certainties. Um, mm -hmm. But that comfort does expire and it becomes more of a nuisance. <laughs> like think about when yeah. you, your partner is like, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> okay, the first couple nights, it's like nice, considerate. You get to choose, you could have it. But if every day it's your responsibility to choose what you have for dinner, you get freaking tired and you're like, just pick something. And that can go two ways with that exhaustion. I feel like sometimes it it materializes in just going back and drinking and like not trying to cut it out because you're so mm -hmm. exhausted with having to try to navigate it. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite, which like is what happened with you, is I don't even want it to be an option anymore. Yeah. Um, there's also something you said that just really, I feel like I just had an aha moment myself, which is that 
you felt like your life was going to be over if you gave up alcohol. And I have felt that way. I know so many friends, family members, whatever, who have said that. (laughs) And just then what is your life? I mean, if if your life is going to be over if you remove alcohol, is Mm -hmm. your life then alcohol? If alcohol is over, I mean, you know what I mean? I just, I've never really thought about it like that, even though I've gotten to somehow, some way realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anyways, reflecting. Very good moment. Yeah. Love all yeah. of it. Um, and then, so you you made the choice. You took it in the six-month chunk, which I think can be very good, like we said, to just take it off the table can you talk about one what you did in those first in that six month chunk to cultivate a linear path for not drinking in that chunk and also what did you do at that six month mark and how did you feel Mm -hmm. so I would say the first six months um I I did a few things. So I think like many of us, because it was what I knew and and what everybody kind of suggested, I checked out a few AA meetings and it was very clearly not for me and that's fine and options are great and it works for lots of folks, um, but it wasn't for me. Um, I was dealing with an immense amount of shame around my drinking and around my addiction. So I didn't tell very many people in my life what I was up to because I was also terrified that I might drink again. And in my head, that would be a failure, which I, you know, would never classify it that way now, but Mm. that's what it felt like at the time. Do you feel Um, like you needed that? Like, I know it's not the healthiest way, but do you feel like in your brain you needed to feel like it was a win-lose situation? I don't, I don't know. I think it might, I, um, that's, I mean, that's a really good question, and sometimes my brain does operate in that way. Yeah. Um, I, I, I also don't. I do too. I mean, yeah. my brain does too. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, sometimes I think I put an immense amount of pressure on myself unnecessarily, but maybe in this case, it actually really helped to propel me forward and keep, le- keep me deeply committed to being sober. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm going to think about that though cuz I think I've never I've never considered that before, but I think that that's um a really interesting question. But um yeah, so I f- I found that because I wasn't telling a lot of people in my real life, I still was really wanting to connect with other people about it. And so I ended up finding a bunch of sober women on Instagram and just like it was so helpful. It was so helpful to see that they somehow figured it out and they got to the other side of it and they seemed to be living lives that they enjoy. Um, it was really helpful to see similarities in my own experience reflected back to me because I felt so alone in what I was experiencing, even though 
I mean, certainly there are things that are part of my story that are unique, but a lot of it isn't, right? A lot of it is overlapping with so many other women's experiences. Um, So it was really helpful to sort of find community. And what I really like about Instagram, and I think it's still true now, is you can really passively take in a lot of stuff without commenting, without people knowing that you're there. Mm -hmm. And that shame piece was still so strong that I didn't want to necessarily follow sober women's accounts, but I could still take in what they were putting out there, which was really helpful. Um, And I have a background in, like I spent a lot of time in academia and health research, and that's where I go when I'm learning about something new or I'm sort of treading in new waters. I will read everything I can about it. So I really immersed myself in reading addiction memoirs, in learning as much as I could about addiction, um, understanding what's actually happening in our brains and what's happening in our bodies when we're putting alcohol and other substances into it. That was really um, a huge part of shifting my relationship to alcohol. And it really, after that, it really felt like the toothpaste was out of the tube and it's hard to go back to when you know that stuff. Yeah. Um, So those things were really part of it. And I also just kind of, uh, I think, an extension of making that real real decision about not drinking, I was deeply committed to prioritizing being sober. And so anything that felt like a threat to that, I was just not, I was not participating in um, for those first six months, which was hard. It meant that I took myself out of a lot of social situations. I really had to reorganize what I did for fun because so much of my life had revolved around alcohol prior to that. Um, And then as I was approaching the six-month mark, the biggest feeling that I had was fear. So knowing that it was on the table to drink again, knowing that I had already given myself permission to reevaluate the role alcohol wasn't had in my life, um, I was terrified that if I started drinking again, I would end up exactly where I was when I quit and I would be back on the road that I had finally gotten myself off of. It didn't feel like an option to drink occasionally because that's just not how my brain works. Like in my brain, one is great and 15 is excellent. And so there would not be the option for me to be, you know, an occasional drinker. And I knew that I would just end up exactly back where I was and I wasn't willing to risk that. So at that six month mark, that was when I made the decision that this is not a thing that will exist in my life. And since that day, like I've, I've been, well, since six months prior to that, I've been sober. And how did you go about incorporating it more abundantly into your life? Because look at your career and your platform and everything that you do. How did that unfold? Mm-hmm. So I didn't really start to talk about my sobriety until I had been sober for a year. So that was the first time that I said anything on Instagram about it. I had looped in some of the people in my life that were close to me, but I wasn't talking about it publicly. I wasn't really sharing anything. And at that point, when I started talking about it, I would say probably maybe 20 to 25 women in my life reached out and said, like, good for you. And 
I also have a not great relationship to alcohol and I don't know how to change it. And I've tried to quit or I've tried to drink less and it just seems to be everywhere and it's not working for me and I black out and all of those things. And at that time, it was pretty clear that it wasn't just me, right? It wasn't just an Amy problem, Amy who like has a, an issue with alcohol. It was alcohol that was the problem and it wasn't working for a lot of people and it wasn't working for a lot of women. And so not quite at that point yet, but soon after that, I really started to embrace what it means to be sober. And I started to feel so much better. And I started to see the benefits of sobriety. And it started to feel powerful to talk about it and to actually recognize that normative alcohol culture is this system kind of like other invisible systems like the patriarchy or racism that we all exist in. And it's powerful and it's manipulative and we're constantly fed messages that tell us that alcohol is the answer to everything and that we should want it and that it helps us be um, successful in our careers and attract a mate and be fun and social and sexy and all of those things. And to remove yourself from that and to actually reclaim who you are and stand in your power is a super brave thing to do. And so it it really started to, and it took some time, but it slowly started to shift for me into this is a really powerful position to be in. And as a woman and as a feminist and as an activist and as a queer woman, I felt like if I wanted to make the changes that I want in the world, it needs to be without alcohol in my life. And that also really helped to um, make me feel more empowered by, by my decision to be sober. And so I've always had, I'm an Aquarian and I've always had a deep desire to change things, to support people, to like work in service of justice. And I've always wanted to help people live in the ways that they want to live in their lives. And in sort of finding the empowered and powerful aspects of being sober and, and seeing how positive and impactful that decision was in my life, I really felt inspired to support other women in, in making that change and, and making a change that makes them also feel powerful in their lives and like reconnected to the strength they have within them. And so I decided to get some formalized training. I already had lived experience. I was already sober. And yeah, so that's sort of a little bit of the trajectory. And it took some time. And I think that that's okay. Um, and it wasn't always clear. And I, I certainly, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, if I imagined where I would be in this particular moment, and this is what I, this is what I, I would have guessed, I probably would have laughed in my own face because this is the furthest thing from what I would have imagined for my life at that point. But I'm here and I'm, I love the life that I live and I feel so honored that I get to do this work. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much that you just shared and I love this whole journey that you went on and that you're going to continue to be on and the people that you're bringing along with you and helping because it is important. Um, 
Sarah, my partner, said this quote that I just love. She said, sobriety cannot thrive in isolation. And it is so true. Community is such a big part. And I think for so long, we've thought that that meant AA and or that meant rehab and you're sitting in a circle. You know, the way that the media has portrayed uh, people who are sober or non-drinkers uh, live. And thank goodness we're evolving past that. And not that those resources are not completely valid and totally right for certain people, but it's just that. It's right for certain people. Mm-hmm. And alienating the group of people who don't feel comfortable, who aren't ready to do that, who don't think they need to, and then giving them the only option to just like manage the abusive relationship with the substance to because they, they can't get there is just um, – I'm so happy we're evolving past it. I'm so happy that you're part of that evolution. Um, You also said something that I think is just so true and I want to talk about it a little bit. The the way that success is portrayed to us with alcohol in abundance everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. If you, you know, it, it, it's just everywhere. It's at the work meetings. It's on the TV shows. It's you're going, you have a hard shift, you go and get drinks, that's success. If you can have a gla- really nice glass of red wine at dinner, then that's success. If you can champagne bottle pop and go to the club, then it's successful. And I think it's a really big reason why so many people, specifically women, um, stay tethered to that wine glass, that champagne, that mimosa Mm -hmm. at lunch, because it's so tied to success and kind of like the feminine form. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you like, I know that's kind of a lot, that's very wordy and a lot to that I just spit at you, but like, how do you redefine success without alcohol? Like, what do you, what's like a tip that you have in order to do that? I know what works for me, but what is, what Mm -hmm. works for you? Yeah. I, yeah, I think that that's a great question. And whenever I'm thinking about whether it's goals or, you know, work stuff, career stuff, I always start with how I want to feel and then I move from there. So for me, success looks like freedom Um, And freedom is freedom in the work that I, you know, the work life that I've created and building a company that allows me to work for myself from wherever I want, the freedom to choose who I work with and the projects that I take on. Um, Impact is another one of my, I would say, core values. So I feel successful when I feel like I've been impactful. So whether that's on a podcast episode that people hear and feel moved by or they have a new perspective or they've like shifted a millimeter on something that previously felt immovable. Um, I feel like I, I, I use different measurements now because I've really connected to who I am and what's actually most important to me. And when I feel free and when I feel impactful and when I feel abundant, when I feel connected to people, when I feel like I'm showing up authentically in my power and I'm speaking my truth and it's landing for people, to me, that is that is a measure of success now. And you'll notice that had nothing to do with 
how much money I'm making or (laughs) the car that I have, the property, like none of that stuff. It's about how I feel and how it, you know, how it lands outside of myself. Feeling is like the key. I feel (laughs) to like everything (laughs) with happiness, success, abundance, everything. And it's what I numbed and probably you numbed for uh, the majority of my like drinking uh, life. And getting in touch with your feelings can be really overwhelming and super hard when you're first not drinking. Um, I felt like, wow, I haven't felt this kind of sadness since I was like 14. How does uh, mid-20s Kate process a feelings of a 14-year-old? Because I never learned how to process it when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of jobs and relationships and friendships and, you know, health and figuring out and juggling everything else, I feel, I feel, haha, like the last thing I wanted to feel was anything. Um, yeah. And you've focused – and are very well versed in how to get in touch with your feelings. What can you do to kind of heal? And EFT tapping kind of plays a role in that. Can you walk me through what EFT tapping is? I know Mm -hmm. that it's um, an underutilized tool when it comes to sobriety, keeping your sober care routine thriving and really flourishing. Um, Give me the skinny on EFT tapping. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just a very quick caveat to it. So when I first, the very first time I read about it, I was, it was in a book and it felt to me that it was so weird and out there that I literally closed the book and I put it on the bookcase and I didn't revisit that book for years because I was like, this is weird and I don't get it. (laughs) So if you if you look into tapping a little bit further and you're like, what is happening? It looks weird. It sounds weird. So like my invitation to listeners is just to like go at it with an open mind because it does look weird and it does it, – it sounds weird, all of it. And it is an evidence-based tool that is supported by – years and years and years of science that tell us how effective it is. So I'll I'll just leave that as well. So EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Techniques. It's also called tapping. And essentially what it is, is a self-administered tool which utilizes physical somatic tapping. So you're literally tapping and stimulating different acupressure points on your head and on your body. And um, while you are stimulating those points in a particular sequence, you are also verbalizing or thinking about, I find verbalizing to be more effective, but you're verbalizing an issue that you want to deal with or work through while you are stimulating those points. So essentially, while the two things are happening at the same time, The verbalizing part of it almost acts in a similar way to exposure therapy. So essentially, it activates the amygdala in your brain. It is stirring up some of the stress and some of the emotions that you felt around whatever the issue is that you are trying to work through. Um, And then essentially, 
that part of your brain, your amygdala, um, it's linked to memory storage, to threat responses like your fight or flight, um, as well as pleasure, anger, fear. So essentially, we and we have the research to show this when you're stimulating that that those points, um, you're essentially pressing pause on your brain's ability to go into fight or flight. So you are pressing pause, you're deactivating signals to the amygdala. And so by repeating the pressure on the acupoints while verbalizing the issue, the amygdala's stress response is reduced. And at the same time, the hippocampus is simultaneously re-recording the problem or the memory or whatever without the psychological anxiety or stress symptoms that go along with it. So, oh my gosh. That so is essentially, fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. So basically you are rewiring your brain and your body's response to something that has previously been very stressful or emotionally activating for you. So that when you encounter that again, you do so without the emotional charge that goes along with it. Oh my gosh. It's like recording over a tape. Yes. Oh my gosh. So when you... Is it because when you're tapping on different parts of your body, um, your brain is focusing on that tapping instead of the, like, how does it work? Why does it do that? Uh, Why does it do what? Like, when you're tapping, how does the tapping alleviate or, like, shut down? Did you say, I'm going to, look, it's... (laughs) EFT all for good. dummies over here. All right. No, no, no. It's okay. It's all it's all new, right? And it's, it's part of new. it is like neuroscience. So I'm like there's a hippo, there's a llama. No, it's just an amygdala, but like, okay, we get it. So your amygdala, which is your stress response, yes? Yep. The idea is that if you're tapping on certain acupuncture points and saying, verbally saying something that is stressful or traumatizing to you. And this, I'm Mm -hmm. guessing, can be on any scale. It can be from something just a little stressful like, I don't know why this is my only example I can think of, but I got a detention. (laughs) I got a detention (laughs) if that was really stressful, all the way to something more traumatic you could use this and it will help assist in you not um, stressing about it as much when you think about it. Yep. That's and exactly that is right. Because when you're tapping on the acupuncture points, when you're saying the things that are traumatic or stressful, what goes on in your brain? What does a tapping do? Yeah, so the um, the specific acupressure points in your head and your body are sending signals to your amygdala, and essentially that's like pressing pause on your brain's response Got to it. go okay. like it's like pressing pause so that it can't go into fight or flight. Okay, so the tapping is okay. Okay, cool. Well, we just yeah. I just made you basically say everything again, but yes, thank you. No, you you reiterated it perfectly, and I just like came in with a tiny tweak at the end. So you got it. This is Um, what I needed in school. I needed to just sit down one on one with my teachers and just try to repeat it. And 
All right, that's how my brain works. I hope whoever is listening that helped their brain just re-go through it. So no, it's great. How does that play in sobriety? Mm -hmm. So um, EFT, just a little background, EFT as a tool um, is relatively new. So it was really kind of introduced and started to um, be applied in the 1990s. And so since then, they have been doing studies on EFT and how um, effective it is, essentially. And now they're starting to put EFT up against some of the more established modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, just to see like what works and what's more effective. Um, side salad EFT is winning um, with, <laughs> with, with like <laughs> fast, faster results and longer lasting results. Um, but from the batch of studies that we have on EFT, we know that EFT is tremendously impactful and effective on things like anxiety, depression, disordered eating, PTSD. We have several helpful studies that t- um, tell us how effective EFT is on things like smoking cessation. So we can see, right, like the the studies focus on key elements of cigarette addiction like cravings, withdrawal symptoms, release, uh, relapse triggers, uh, physical associations, identity issues connected to being a smoker. And so we can see how that would so easily transfer and be applied to something like sobriety and something like changing your relationship to drinking. And so, yes. Yeah. So it's, um, it's really, really fantastic as a tool not only because, I mean, it's self-administered. So once you know how to use it, that's now a tool you have in your back pocket and you can pull it out at any time. And if, you know, if you find that you are early in your sober journey and you're out at a dinner party and everybody is drinking around you and you're feeling a bit nervous about that, you can go to the bathroom and do a quick tapping session and reset and come on back and probably feel a whole lot better about the whole situation. So. The applications for it are really broad. So, you know, for a lot of people, um, there are obviously the addiction became the issue and the substance use became the issue, but maybe at a time in their life, it was a solve for an issue like lack of self-confidence or people-pleasing tendencies or not having boundaries or whatever it is. And what's cool about EFT is it's great for those types of issues as well. And so you really can use this particular tool to support you in a very holistic way when it comes to your sobriety and the different um, elements of, you know, what, what sort of fed into your issue with substances. I am obsessed with this. I love this. <laughs> I think Honestly, and I was like thinking, I'm like listening to you. I'm like, why would people be so hesitant to do this? And I'm like, oh, I think because it seems so like an easy answer. And I think we're really skeptical oftentimes, as you should be, about like easy, quick fixes. Nothing is super quick. It takes time. It takes practice. With all of that said, if somebody wants to start, how should they start? Is it a Google? I mean, I'm sure you have an abundance of references on your site. How do you Mm -hmm. start? 
Yeah. So I have a YouTube channel. So I did a video called What the Heck is EFT? And it talks about how it actually works. It talks about the um, acupressure points and the sequence that you want to use it. And that's that sequence is the same sequence used in all the studies. It's like the gold standard sequence. So we actually have evidence and data with this particular sequence. So that's the one that I use. Um, so that would be a great starting point for anybody who's like, what is happening here? And I want more information. So it's about a 10 minute video. So that's a great start. There are a multitude of tapping resources out there. There is a website called The Tapping Solution. It's a brother-sister duo who are super into tapping. They have resources on their website. There are a whole bunch of books. And I am also an EFT practitioner. And I would say that for somebody who's maybe kind of, and I'll use your example of detention, Um, (laughs) someone who's maybe dealing with like a detention level issue, I think it would be very fine to go online and just kind of like do a little self-study and maybe take what you learn and apply it to a detention level situation. And for anyone who's interested in maybe releasing a little bit more, working through something that feels a bit heavier or is is maybe a little more deep-seated, I would highly recommend working with a practitioner. They can take you beyond where you could probably go yourself because they have expertise in the area. So when I work with somebody just in a tapping capacity, um, what it looks like is somebody coming to me, they've identified the issue that they want to deal with and work through. And then I um, send them a bunch of in-depth questions. And, you know, it's interesting what this came to mind when you were talking about, like, why don't people use this? And it seems too easy and like whatnot. But it actually, you know, for some of the deep seated things that we're dealing with, like maybe childhood trauma, maybe abuse, maybe, you know, something big and heavy that we carry around um, to actually go there and to face it is there's there's nothing easy about that work and it might seem like a quicker way to tackle it and and it can be for sure um but the way that i go about sessions and i think um I think you need to do it this way. You need to be really emotionally activated when you're doing this and when you're working through it because you want to feel it because all that stuff is inside of you. And basically EFT gives you the opportunity to release it in a container with someone who can hold it with you and can help you move through it. And so I would say working with a practitioner for some of the bigger issues would be a really good idea just so that you essentially have somebody who's holding your hand as you move through this stuff yeah and you deserve to have a partner in it you really do heavy trauma it's it's a lot to lift and it's not a one-person job um yeah well I'm gonna digest all this this has been phenomenal uh usually I end with asking what's a tool that you would suggest for anybody's sober toolkit but we just gave you a full rundown of EFT and tapping so Amazing. The YouTube will be watched tonight by yours truly. I will be (laughs) tapping on my own. And when I'm ready to tackle some heavier traumas, I'm I'm banging your email line because I'm 
I, it sounds like an incredible resource. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and give me your backstory. And I loved this. Me too. It's been so great. I'm so glad we had a chance to connect and uh, thank you for what you do and for creating space for these really important conversations. It um, it makes a huge difference. And so I'm really grateful for you and this platform. For more guidance on building your sober hair routine, head to clearheaded.co or follow us on Instagram at clearheaded.co. 